Did you know that pregnant women are scientifically shown to become more xenophobic, fearful of outsiders during their first trimester? When our bodies sense that we are under a infectious disease threat, we get to be more wary of outsiders. Turns out that's when they're most susceptible to infections. So the body actually has what researchers call the behavioral immune system. And there's wisdom to get from studying how we do this thing that humans love to do, which is divide people into groups to label others as either safe or unsafe, friend or enemy. In this episode of The Soul of Life, I speak with Olga Hazan, a talented writer that covers health, gender, and science for The Atlantic. Before that, she wrote for the LA Times and the Washington Post. And she just published a book called Weird, The Power of Being an Outsider in an Insider's World. We talk about her personal experience as an outsider growing up a Russian Jew in widely evangelical West Texas, and some of her interviews with people who don't follow the crowd and it works in their favor, the way it did for a survivor of the Jonestown massacre. I had this totally different impression of Jonestown. I thought people were kind of like 201, really, like brainwashed. Hazan chronicles the people who stand out, who don't fit in. And in so doing, she illustrates how loners and outsiders are really not alone. Even in a cult, you can have someone who's like, I'm not going along with what everyone else is doing. I'm Keith Miller, and my podcast, The Soul of Life, is here to help you remember who you really are. I'll bring together people who have gotten off their treadmills. I'll have conversations with athletes, musicians, doctors, scientists, healers, and entrepreneurs to discuss the fascinating edges of our knowledge in neurobiology, psychology, and physics. This is the soul of life. It's amazing to have Olga Hazan here. She's a staff writer for The Atlantic covering health, gender, and science. Prior to that, she was The Atlantic Global Editor. She has also written for the Los Angeles Times, The Washington Post, Forbes, and other publications. She's a two-time recipient of the International Reporting Project's Journalism Fellowship and winner of the 2017 National Headliner Awards for Magazine Online Writing. Welcome, Olga. How are you? I'm good. How are you doing? Doing great. You know, it's another day. It's like a another Groundhog Day. Every, you know, every day, every day is different, but like here we are again in front of a screen talking to people. Um, yes. <laughs> but uh, it's great to speak with you. I'm, I'm really interested in hearing about your, your book that you launched during this pandemic. That's, that's an interesting story in, in and of itself. Tell me about the history of weird. Yeah. So, um, I have been, I've always just been interested in people who are like fish out of water or kind of go against the grain or doing something different from what everyone else around them is doing. Like I always found myself drawn to those stories, um, where it was sort of like, wow, how is that person like so completely bucking the trend or so completely, you know, not doing the thing that everyone else is and kind of sticking true to what they really want to do. Um, that's, I would not say like, I'm like more of a rule follower conformist in my day to day life. Um, but I did have one really, um, uh, strong experience that wasn't like that, which is my growing up my early life. Um, which took place in Midland, Texas, um, which is in, in far West Texas. Um, and I, um, my family are, are Russian refugees, Russian Jewish refugees, mm -hmm. um, of which there weren't any others in Midland. Um, and not a big Jewish uh, population in, in that part of Texas. 
No, I think one time I tried to see if there was a synagogue there that I could like talk to the director of and they actually like the synagogue closed due to lack of interest. Um, (laughs) (laughs) So, um, um, or something like, it was like, we're only doing services like one day a week. Anyway. And and your family um, is Russian. Is that right? Your background is Russian that your family, your father moved here to Los Angeles first. Is that correct? Yeah, yeah. So my so the way it happened is that in the late 80s, early 90s, um, there was a big kind of exodus of uh, of Russian Jews, no pun intended, um, <laughs> from the USSR uh, to the US. Um, we were sponsored by American Jewish community groups um, and refugee organizations, most notably this organization called HIAS, um, which is still in operation today. Um, and we were resettled in these cities all around America that had large Jewish populations, um, in the hopes that we would integrate with them and become kind of feel at home among fellow Jews. Um, it sort of worked, I think for a lot of people, a lot of people did do that. Um, my family and like almost immediately moved to West Texas. (laughs) Um, so we did not do that. Uh, and instead had this very strange experience, um, that was, uh, Kind of, you know, I mean, it was a long time ago and it wasn't, um, it, it, uh, it happened a long time ago, but as you know, like our early childhood experiences tend to be very formative and tend to, um, leave a strong impression on us and tend to kind of, um, I don't know, stay with you in certain ways. So I wanted to kind of dig into that feeling, um, and also explore the stories of other people who have had that same experience in different ways. Right. Right. And, and so your book is called weird. The, the power of being an outsider in an insider's world. Um, mm-hmm. Tell me a little bit. So it sounds like the, I mean, the back, I can hear the backdrop of this already. Like, it sounds like you've been writing this your whole life. This has been kind of you. So why do you, why do you like fish out of water so much? You write about a John Hopkins surgery professor with dwarfism. I think it's a two, two, two dozen people that you interviewed. Um, transgender mayor, a top flight black female lawyer, transgender science entrepreneur, female race car driver, not Danica Patrick. Not Danica Patrick, yeah. And <laughs> the other one. <laughs> the other female race car driver and fugitives of, of, in the Amish community and the Mormon community. Yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, it takes so much to break out of some of those norms, either to break into those communities or to break out of them. So in the case of the Amish woman, I mean, she's one of the most inspirational people I've ever met. I mean, she, there's nothing wrong with being Amish for the people who want to do that, but like she had to decide at such a young age, you know, when she was a teenager, they have no access to technology. Like she couldn't Google like how to escape the Amish. Um, She had to rely on this like whisper network of people who basically smuggled her out of there and then she had to learn English on her own and she had to like go to college and get her, I mean, she had to get her GED first. Like she had to learn all this stuff. And it's like, I don't know. I'm just so impressed by people who are so motivated to do something that where life is constantly telling them you don't belong here. You shouldn't be doing this. You can't make it like, and yet they're like, no, like something in me tells me that I want to do this and I'm going to do it. And I don't know. I just, I've always been just really drawn to those narratives. Right, right. Um, it seems like we're fascinated with, with weird things and weird people. I mean, you, you talk about the almost the pain points, I think, of, of being the outsider. And you kind of talk about the idea of reclaiming the word 
weird. Um, uh, were you called the weirdo like in, in, in West Texas? Were you, was that something you, was that an identity that you picked up yourself? Did you feel weird or did people call you weird and then you felt weird, you know? <laughs> yeah, I think it was a little bit of both. Um, people definitely called me weird. Um, uh, you know, but I also felt weird. Like I, my family didn't do the things that all the other families in town did. Obviously, um, my parents aren't Christians. They're, they're atheists. Um, everyone in, in Midland is pretty much an evangelical Christian. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, it, it, it was, it was, uh, you know, it, it was like a, a trying experience. Like it was, it was difficult to be so different. It's always difficult for kids to be different. Um, and, uh, it was, it was hard for me in that, in that sense. And, um, you know, but then I, I kind of like, as I, as I got older and as I, um, I don't know, just entered this field where you're constantly like examining things really closely, I kind of started to feel like, well, it's a lot of really successful journalists actually have unusual backgrounds and unusual kind of experiences that help inform our work. Like they help you understand other people. Like, I think I do understand evangelical Christians pretty well. Um, uh, you know, because I grew up around them and, um, you know, so I'm not sure that I would like go back and change that background, even though it was very difficult at the time. I, I think I actually gained something from being kind of like on the outside looking in my whole life. Mm -hmm. Um, I think it actually, benefited me in various ways. Um, and I also wanted to, to just like have the book talk about that a little bit, because I feel like people don't often realize how much their, um, negative experience, negative experiences can actually build resilience. Right. That it can turn into something really positive as opposed to feeling like you're an outcast or, uh, feeling bad, feeling shame. I mean, that was one of the things that I picked up on as a psychotherapist in our field, uh, when, uh, professionals write about the topic of shame and there's people out there, Brene Brown is one of them who's made quite a, a splash. I mean, and, and is doing a great job, I think, informing people talking about the, the way, how, how prevalent shame is in our body, just the way our body, our brain is wired neurologically to uh, guard against and have this really uh, profound physical like sickness, right? That's what shame feels like. You feel sick in your, in your gut when, when you get the sense that you don't belong or that you've mm -hmm. done something wrong and that people will find out and then you won't belong. Um, so it's, people have done so much work but, around talking about shame, but I find, and I think, you know, Brene, Brene Brown talks about this all the time, that when she brings up the topic of shame, everybody leaves the room. I mean, that was her experience at first before she became the superstar uh, who talks about shame. Um, so, yeah, I, I guess it's what I was so impressed about by your writing is that you, you really you know, you really do it indirectly. You, you talk about yourself, you talk about others and you really put others out there and you just sort of paint the portraits and people are interested in stories. I think we like to hear stories. And, and I felt myself being pulled into the stories. And then before I knew it, you know, oh, you're actually talking about me. You're talking about my experience in a Baptist youth group, <laughs> feeling like an outsider in a, in a state or in a town full of Catholic kids, my peers. Um, you know, so it, it, it's just, it, I found that it was such a service, uh, the way you, you wrote and spoke about it. How are people responding to, the, to, to your book? And 
Yeah, I mean, it's interesting that you mentioned that. Um, yeah, so so Brene Brown has done such good work on on shame and um, that people leave the room when um, she mentions it. Um, I found that like even when I was first kind of pitching the book around, some editors and some people in the book world were like, "Oh well, um, like no one really faces ostracism anymore after middle school. Like <laughs> no one really feels like an outsider after you know." after like grade school. And I, I was like, I don't think that's really true. I think people pretend like they don't, you know, or they, they wish that they didn't, or they have this idea that they should just get over it. Like they right. should, you know, this, this sense that like, if I was only stronger or like, this is nothing, it's all in my head. But, you know, as, as you know, like things that are all in your head can also <laughs> have an impact on you. Um, every, there was every, everything's study. in our head, right? Right, right. Everything's all in your head. Like your head is all there is. Yeah. Um, but like, but you know, there's this great study that I read in, about in the book about um, these these professors who were like, we're going to do a study on ostracism, and we're going to um, every day ostracize like a different one of our group members, <laughs> and we're all going to know about it ahead of time, and we're going to put a scarlet letter O above that person's door to know that that's the day that we ostracize that person, so they're going to know about it too. So this is a completely not blinded, not controlled experiment. They were just like sort of whatever, trying some stuff. And it's amazing. They kept journals during this time. And the journal entries are all like, I feel horrible. Like, I feel like a ghost who's wandering around. Like, I'd do anything to get people to acknowledge me. Like, they were really suffering because it's very, very, very painful to have people turn against you, even if you know why it's happening. Right. Um, so I definitely want to acknowledge that because I think people who feel that way, you know, whatever, after middle school can sometimes feel like, why is this happening to me and how do I make it stop? <laughs> it's so relevant, Olga. It's so relevant. I think you're right. Our, our brain and our mind, and this is my story and this is why I started the podcast. Uh, and, and I won't get into it now because I've talked about it in other places, but um our mind is capable of, of creating these compartments in these rooms uh, from which it keeps us from going in. Our, our awareness of who we are stays out of those rooms. Um, yeah. And yet, you know, those, those things continue to have influence in our life and our behavior because it's taking up mental space, you know, in our, in our head. So there's a study yeah. you reminded me of uh, that I learned about in social psych when I've you know, was an undergrad psych minor. This is one, one of my favorite classes was social psychology. I don't know about you. Um, and the, the, what they did is they brought people into a public setting like a mall. And they said, we're going to, uh, we're going to put this horrible scar. They had a makeup artist there. And we're going to put this horrible scar on your face. And they showed them what it looked like after they put it up on their face. And they said, oh, and they, so they showed them the mirror and they, and they showed them the scar. And then they said, um, they took the mirror away. They said, we've got one more final touch. And they, the artist went back and actually took the scar off. Hmm. And they didn't know that. They just kind of removed it. Hmm. And then they didn't know that it was gone. And they went through them all. And they asked them to journal, you know, or, or respond to questions about how people treated them and what was their experience at the mall. Well, all the respondents pretty consistently said people mistreated them. People looked at them oddly. They felt odd. They felt like they were weird. Um, wow. And then they came back and showed him, it was just you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh my God. That's a, that's crazy. I'm sorry. That totally is. So <laughs> I feel like that is just reverberating for me on so many levels and with so many people that I've met. Um, 
Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, you know, again, that's all in your head, but it had an impact on, on how you went through the world. It did. It did. Yeah, yeah. It's amazing. One thing I want to ask you about, I want to ask you to read a segment from your, from your book where you talk about your story and your background, um, feeling like an outsider. Um, so, and then we'll talk about that. So many of my stories about being wronged by Americans involve long descriptions of their tone and the look in their eye, because really their actual words weren't that bad. They probably didn't even mean anything by it, but I'm bundling together my off-brand Nikes and the time I pronounced it jacuzzi and the time everyone laughed because I didn't know what an airplane hanger was and wrapping it in the prosciutto of their innocuous comment and baking it it all in the oven of my immigrant shame until out pops a hot little oozing nugget of offense taken. When you're an outsider, you never really know when you've finally been allowed in. You're constantly throwing your hands up in front of your face, probing for the invisible barrier between you and everyone else. Yeah, I find that I find that so powerful. I mean, your writing is uh, you have a gift with words. And so it 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 just pulls together kind of so many different strands. But one of the things that it's tugging on for me is is, you know, how we talk about our, you know, in my case, how I talk about and how I experience my whiteness. Um, mm-hmm. How others experience my whiteness, uh, how some how I experience someone's blackness or their race, their their ethnicity, um, and you know you're talking about this idea that it's so um, self-referencing, it's so subjective, right? You that almost like it seems like we really have to sort of um, you can't really tell what somebody's thinking about you. You've, you somehow you've got to lean into it and figure it out, and and not just make up a story. You're listening to the Soul of Life podcast with me, Keith Miller. Every week I bring you a new episode that hopefully inspires you to reflect more on who you are and who you want to be in this rapidly changing world. If this time we share together moves you somehow closer to who you are or lights up parts of you that have been unplugged, I want to hear from you. And please share the love. Take a moment to find the Soul of Life podcast in the social media where you hang out on iTunes, Facebook, Instagram, or YouTube, and let me know who you are. Yeah, I mean, and it's, you know, it can be really difficult because, I mean, the reason I, I think that part of the book I was, I was talking about how um, I sometimes kind of, especially in, in recent years, I myself kind of interpret events negatively because of all the things that have happened in the past. So um, maybe the person didn't, you know, uh, mean anything by what they were saying, but I, I took it in a really negative way because in the past um, I've learned that often people mean something negative when they say something like that um, because that was true in the past. Um, right. So, I mean, for me personally, it's, it's like really hard to let go of all those scars and all those times when I have been insulted or, 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 felt um, less than, um, even when, you know, in kind of day-to-day life, maybe now, people aren't intending it that way, but I'm kind of interpreting it that way because of my own past experience. Right. Um, so that's been something that I have uh, somewhat successfully tried to work on, uh, is like having um, less negative interpretations of interactions. Sure, <laughs> sure. People. Well, and you're, you're, you're quite candid, you know, as you are now in the, in the book about your, you know, this is a work in progress. You're still working on this, right? Like, which I think as a reader, it, it sort of pulls, pull, pulls me in, it pulls us in. Um, what was it like though, as a journalist? And, and I want to get to maybe a little bit later, your background in science writing, we'll come back to that. But particularly as a journalist, even just as a journalist, never mind a science writer, um, writing, a book with so much first person information 
Uh, was that, uh, were you nervous about doing that? Yeah, I was at times nervous a little bit, like how will this be received or how will people react to this? Um, and, and people have asked me this, like, do you feel, um, you know, there is a lot of stuff about my own struggles with anxiety and other issues in there. Um, but I guess like to me, a big focus of my life and my career has been to normalize struggles with um, mental health um, and and not even struggles, but just like mental health in general. And, and, you know, the fact that it's, it's part of our lives and, and that, you know, it's something that affects lots of people. So I, I think that if you um, turn it into something you can't talk about, like, you know, it, it kind of almost makes it worse. Like, I, I think that it's better to just say, Hey, this is something that's affected me and something I've struggled with. And I mean, I'm not saying that everyone has to disclose and, and I, I wouldn't want anyone to do anything they're not comfortable with, but I, I do think that having more openness about um, mental health issues, you know, could, could be a positive thing. And, and so people wouldn't feel like, you know, when you're, when you have a cold, you're fine with telling your boss, you know, Hey, I have a, I'm in bed with a cold today. I can't work. But if you have depression, you would never say that. Right. Uh, right. So, um, but I kind of think we should try to change that and try to, you know, see it as on par with physical health. I, I'm with you. We, we have to change that. I, I'm, I'm convinced uh, about that, especially after my experience, which my listeners will know about. Um, it's something we have to change. We have to begin to talk about and normalize and say, Hey, this is not a, it's not something you wait until you're, you're feeling sick or unwell. Actually, mental health is mental health care is something that you do all the time. Um, yeah. but anyway, um, tell me about the first trimester phenomenon that happens with women. This just sounds <laughs> fascinating. Yeah. So this is to back up. <laughs> yeah. um, this is a part of the book where I'm talking about the behavioral immune system. And it's essentially this idea that when our, when our bodies sense that we are under a infectious disease threat, we get to be more wary of outsiders. So we tend to avoid foreigners or people who might be from other kind of faraway lands who might have pathogens that we're not accustomed to when we feel more vulnerable to infection. So um, they've like done this study in a million different ways, but one of the most interesting is that um, in their first trimester, women are more vulnerable to infections. Um, you're more likely to have a miscarriage and um, if, you, if you get some sort of infection from a pathogen. Um, so women in that trimester is, are actually more xenophobic, more wary of foreigners. Um, because they don't want to get sick and um, accidentally have a miscarriage. Um, of course, that's not the only thing that leads to miscarriages. Um, uh, but it's it's kind of an interesting phenomenon that I think we've seen a lot of in recent days, um, in recent months, where, uh, you know, we have this new pathogen, coronavirus, circulating among us. And indeed, what you saw is people being really racist toward uh, Asian Americans, anyone who looked like they might be Asian. Right were of Chinese descent because they were wary of that pathogen and didn't want to catch it. Um, so it's interesting how our fear of outsiders and fear of people who are quote unquote weird um, ramps up whenever we have this um, infection risk. Right. It, you, uh, it, it's, it seems um, striking to me that even among groups of people who are generally getting along very well, when the topic of COVID comes up and how are they going to deal with say the national Republican convention? You know, like there, it promotes a lot of 
conflict and polarization and infighting and, and people are just anxious about this and at, at, at a visceral level as you point out uh, with this idea of the behavioral immune system that you know if there's a threat out there and it you know because we are uh, vulnerable to disease obviously we you know are, we can't help it it's part of our DNA to uh, group people into safe and unsafe and that sort of thing um, yeah. and I guess you can talk about profiling and that sort of thing and there's obviously ways to overcome it as a as a person in the clinical psychology field that's really what we talk about all the time is overcoming those stereotypes and biases whether it's the story you tell about yourself that people have told you and you tell you yourself as well or the story you're making about others in in your family for example and try to break those down um how do you uh is there a way to get away with being weird i mean I guess we could say we're kind of witnessing it over the last almost four years. Um, and, and I think even by, and I don't want to get political here, but even by his own definition, our president was an outsider um, and, and convinced enough people to go along, right? Obviously. And so I think there's people out there that are, you know, sitting around possibly saying like, look, I, I feel like I want my voice to, to count, whether it's at the law firm um, maybe you're a minority um, where you work or live and you want your voice to be heard in whatever setting. It could be just your family and whether or not we call that weird or not, but we may feel like we're the outsider. Um, how can you get away with getting other people to go along and actually adopt your weirdness or uh, give you a pass even? Yeah. So um, one of my favorite strategies for this is called idiosyncrasy credits. Um, which is really hard to say and kind of an unwieldy term from the 1950s in psychology. Um, and it's basically this idea that you have to, um, you can be weird, but you kind of have to like ease people into it, kind of like the frog in boiling water kind of situation. So you have to kind of um, conform a little bit at first, and then later you can kind of unleash your weird ideas when they matter most. So um, you see a lot of examples of this. Um, one person I was talking to mentioned that this is like what people do in relationships often. Uh, so for better or worse, like your first like three or four dates with someone, you'll be like, oh yeah, I like whatever you like and I'll do whatever you want. And, you know, and then suddenly two years in, you're like, I'm only watching, you know, football and I'm only doing this or that. Like you, you right. put, draw a lot of more firm lines later on once you feel like the person's already invested in you. Totally. Um, but you can, you can do a, a less extreme thing with them. Um, so work, for example, if you really have a lot of non-traditional ideas for your workplace and you know that they're not necessarily going to go over well as soon as you start, you know, maybe start and kind of go along with whatever everyone's saying, kind of like, yes, totally go to the meeting, you know, I'm on board with everything everyone's saying. And then, you know, two, three months later, when it's time for your big project proposal that's going to be a little bit unusual, people will be more likely to see you as one of them. They'll be more likely to say, oh, you're one of us. Of course, we will let you do this crazy thing. <laughs> like, <laughs> you know, we totally accept you. Um, people just uh, have a, like a warmer feeling toward, uh, toward individuals who they've seen as like one of them, one of their own for a while. And they're more willing to accept unusual ideas from them. So idiosyncrasy credits, that's the, that's the yes. term. And it, it does sound like an, an old term. I'll be, I'll be honest. I mean, I think the, uh, but the concept is extremely relevant as, as you know, um, I've spent a lot of my career working with couples in marriage in the field of marriage counseling. And 
one of the things that and it's, it's almost like kind of common sense and, you know, in, in hindsight, people might say, well, duh, of course you do that in couples therapy, but it's not so, not so common sense. You really have to kind of first just say to people, hey, what were the behaviors that you used to be doing when you first met? Mm-hmm. And usually they're very, um, they're gracious behaviors. There's a lot of, there's a lot more gratitude. There's a lot more caring behaviors. And so we just call it that. It's, you know, we just say, what were the caring behaviors you used to be doing? And we try to teach this idea that, you know, if you want to get something from someone, and I, I wish our politicians would listen to this idea. If you want to get something from someone, you've got to actually give something. And actually the, the bigger thing that you give, the more capital you're probably going to get, or at least potential. Um, it's like taking out a loan. I mean, you, you, and if you want to borrow a big loan, you've got to have the capital behind it, or at least the, the resources. So a lot of people try to do these big ass of their partner, um, or they get really frustrated because they're convinced their partner's, you know, a, a stick in the mud. And it's like, well, maybe is there something you're not giving? And, and that's, you know, anyway, that's counseling 101. <laughs> it seems <laughs> do obvious. People, do people ever relearn those caring behaviors that they had? In the Oftentimes it's not that hard. We just, you know, we'll say to them, come up with a list of like 10 things. And, and I'll say usually like, I, I bet you dollars to donuts that like eight of those 10 things are going to be so simple. You're going to just think you're an idiot. I mean, I don't say that, but there's simple things like say hello in the morning, like make eye contact when you pass each other in the kitchen once in the morning. Wow. Like, yeah, sometimes it's like really we're getting people out of a kind of a hole, but um, for others, it's just like, oh yeah, we used to call each other sweetie or you know, we used to have different names or, you know, and I'll, I'll say, well, is it, is it hard? Is it going to kill you to do that one? Is it going to kill you to make her a cup of coffee when you get yours? Uh, no, I just don't think about it. Cause we're just like, you know, well, could you start thinking about it? Like that's all we're really doing is trying to get them to think about these things that they already used to do. They already know these things they've just forgotten Wow. and they don't think it's important. So that seems to really line up with what you're talking about with the, with this, it, you know, idios- yeah, idiosyncrasy totally. credit credits. Um, <laughs> and, uh, one thing that stood out, you, you interviewed a lot of people in the book, um, what was it like talking to the Jonestown massacre survivor? Yeah. Um, so I, she has talked about her experience a lot. Um, it was very traumatizing. I think one thing for her, sorry, not for uh-huh. me. Um, uh, I think one thing that made that interview really special is that I had this totally different impression of Jonestown. I thought people were, kind of like two a one really like brainwashed. And, you know, that's kind of the impression that we get is like right. all these people so brainwashed, they drank the Kool-Aid. Um, and um, she really uh, saw through him almost from the beginning. Like she always had questions about him. And I felt like she was sort of, Leslie was like pulled along into this cult because of kind of a little bit of coercion. Like they started to they took her son there to, to Jonestown and they were like, if you want to see him again, you have to come join us. And just to give a little background. And so jo- Jones was a, was a kind of a charismatic individual who in the, in the United States then moved his followers to Guyana. Yes. Um, and, and eventually got them all to commit suicide by drinking Kool-Aid laced with cyanide. Uh, yeah. For people who don't, haven't read that account. Yeah. It was just amazing that she kind of like all she she was there for years. I mean, this was going on for years. And the whole time she was sort of like, something's not right about this guy. And like, mm. something is not um, 
you know, something's not, not adding up here. And when the day came to escape, you know, the escape party was like, do you want to come with us? And she said, yes. Like she, she ran away from the cult on the day that the suicides happened and, um, on the morning. So she wasn't there when everyone died. Um, I will say that not, um, it's not quite true that, that people were eagerly all committing suicide. Mm. Um, so it's not like she was the only one who had misgivings. Um, but I do think it, it, um, it, it was, it was really surprising and impressive to me that even in a cult, you can have someone who's like, I'm not going along with what everyone else is doing. Like I might go through emotions, but I have my suspicions. Um, so I thought, I thought that was, that was pretty impressive. Yeah. I mean, it's striking. It's, it's chilling and striking. And you, you kind of talk about this idea of almost the takeaway is like, pay attention to your gut feelings. If something's not right, Mm -hmm. you know, and that's easier said than, than done for a lot of people who, as I, you know, as, as, as we know, if those of us who work in the trauma field, the psychological traumas, that your gut feelings are usually the ones that you felt during the traumatic experience and you felt them in an an abundance. And so typically you're trying not to feel those feelings um, Mm -hmm. as your, you know, uh, post, you know, post-traumatic stress uh, is really this idea, you know, this, your, your body's, you're fighting all of these normal feelings, your gut feelings, because they're associated with this horrible thing that happened to you. We, we try to help people kind of reassociate to those gut feelings and, and befriend them and just realize it's just your body. It's just, it's just you. You, know, you don't have to be yeah. afraid of these gut feelings. Um, but that, that it's so important, um, even though we all, I think most of us want to do the right thing, we, we generally don't want to harm others. Um, but sometimes we've got to follow our gut you know, and stand up or get out leave the room. Mm-hmm. Um, you have this, this quote, um, uh, I'll, I'll just read this quote from the book. The human desire for love and kinship is so strong that charismatic monsters like Jones can turn it against us. The only antidote is trusting that inner moral sense that something's not quite right. It's really kind of what I was just speaking about. Um, but, you know, the, the idea that charismatic monsters are out there, I think people, for a lot of people right now is real. Um, and I think a lot of people are afraid of what's happening. Um, and as far as politically in this country, how would you, you know, how would you, what would you say to people who are fighting racism? Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of different cultural discussions happening right now. Does that seem like an oxymoron for you? Cause you're talking about this idea of, you know, kind of opening up to this inner moral sense. It doesn't sound like fighting. Uh, when people talk yeah. about we have to fight these monsters, we have to know what the monsters are. We have to stand up to them. Yeah, I I don't necessarily think it's a oxymoron because um, the so yeah so people have asked me this, and the book m- doesn't really focus on um, how to fight prejudice uh, that much, um, like societally. Right. So it talks a lot about how what you as an individual can do if you feel like you're being, pre- you know disadvantaged in some way. Um, but, um, honestly, I don't, it's my sense that psychological kind of tricks don't really work as well for mass kind of prejudice, um, or at least reducing it. I mean, I've I've like looked into this and I, it, it just is so difficult to, um, eradicate all prejudice through, um, kind of little, psychology 
you know, it's, it's, yeah, like it's, it's like a, it's like a lot more difficult than mm-hmm. that. And I think it's kind of a testament to, um, the black lives matter movement that they have been, um, so successful at raising awareness of this and actually affecting real change. Um, but they didn't do it through, you know, Malcolm Gladwell books. Like they did it through, um, you know, direct action and, and through protests in the streets, through, um, you know, a flood of posts on social media, like not just, you know, clicktivism or whatever, but, you know, a a ton of attention to, uh, these issues, um, rightfully so. Um, so I, I think that they have been really effective, but that's because they've been using techniques that are kind of tried and true, right. Mm -hmm. From, from like the civil rights movement, essentially. Um, so, um, yeah, I mean, to me, like, I think I, I tried to say this in the book, at least, um, you can, we can continue to fight against racism and, and other forms of prejudice. Um, and at the same time on an individual level, you can be doing things to live a a happier life. Um, or at least that's what my book is, is for. (laughs) Yeah. I, I, I think people need to hear that. We need to hear that Olga. Um, so I think that's a gift for all of us. Um, I want to shift gears a little bit. It's, and it's a great book. I think people should get it. Absolutely. And, and read you and, um, but I want to, I want to hear from you a little bit about what it's been like being a writer. When did you first know you were a writer and tell me about, um, how you got into science writing and then, uh, eventually to the Atlantic. Yeah. Um, well, I've always wanted to be a writer. I have like the boring writer story that uh, some people I feel like went and worked on an Arctic ice ship and then discovered that they want to write halfway through. I did not do that. I always wanted to be a writer. Um, went to college for politics because I was like trying to maybe be a lawyer. Um, and, and then I just immediately went to grad school for journalism afterward. <laughs> um, uh, got my degree in journalism and then I worked at the Washington Post. Um, and then I got my job at the Atlantic. Um, I have always been interested in, in science reporting and science writing. Um, and uh, sort of as when the beat opened up, I, I switched from global um, coverage to, to science writing and health reporting. Um, and, uh, it's, it's been really interesting. Like I, uh, you know, there are just so many mysteries of the mind and the body out there and I've, I've really enjoyed, um, exploring them. So, um, yeah, I'm sorry that it's, it's not a, it's a very, very, very traditional writer story. <laughs> no, I, I think it's, it's a, I think it's encouraging because you know, you, you knew who you were early and you, you followed that path and it's, it sounds like you enjoy being who you are as a writer. Um, yeah, I do. Yeah. I really like it. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think that's a great story. Um, and what's it like being, especially a science writer, having that background, um, especially during this time, during the pandemic, when it seems like people are struggling to get the right information, even, even good people who want to get the right information are struggling to get it right sometimes. So what's that been like to cover this pandemic? Very frustrating. I really, um, I am very frustrated with a lot of the quote unquote news out there. Uh, I am going to not name names uh, because I don't know what your legal risk is if I do. <laughs> <Sure>. <laughs> um, uh, there are some networks out there and some TV personalities um, that I really think have um, cost people lives yeah. because they've uh, been spreading misinformation about um, about the pandemic and have been 
uh, from an early stage uh, coaxing people into a false sense of security. And it's, it's very frustrating. And um, I mean, uh, yeah, I, it's, I mean, we can write all the articles we want, but mm-hmm. if you have a huge market share, it's, it's very difficult to fight against that. It's very difficult if people want to hear some version of this, you know, of the mythologies that are being spread. It reminds me of uh, in the eighties in Africa, there were leaders, political leaders in in certain countries in Africa who were spreading myths and making up stories about how HIV was transmitted, that it, you know, was not a virus, et cetera. And, and, and that, it, uh, you know, so it, and it, it clearly set back the uh, response to bringing the virus down and saving lives. It clearly cost people's lives in Africa. Um, so anyway, I, I feel like we're in such a, such a historical time, but there's, do you, do you have the sense also that there's an opportunity here in some way? What, what's, the, what's the silver lining? What should we be looking for? What's the opportunity for us? Um, yeah, I, um, that's a really good question. And I, I, you know, I feel like every crisis is also a wake-up call. And I hope that this is a wake-up call about um, how fragile our health and our mental health and, and everything has been um, uh, this, this entire time. I mean, you know, I feel like people are seeing that African-Americans are dying at a much higher rate from COVID. Um, but, uh, African-Americans had a much higher mortality rate before COVID COVID, too. And, and I mean, it's, it's uh, health disparities have been a huge problem in the U S for decades. Um, I think, you know, and then also now where we're doing online school, like I, I feel like people are finally seeing that not all kids have access to, a computer and internet and, you know, a mom and dad who will sit there and monitor their Zoom lessons. Like, I think this is really exposing a lot of the vulnerabilities in our society. And hopefully, um, you know, once we are at a stable place and or immediately or as soon as possible, uh, we can start kind of bridging some of those gaps and and bringing resources to some of those communities that have been under-resourced for so long. so that's my hope is that it's, it's sort of like a, Hey, like this has been really bad for a long time. Right. <laughs> and this is finally like the flashpoint that makes you see. I, I hope you're right. I mean, if for people who know our history that during the great, after it was after the great depression, the great depression served as this sort of catalyst to mobilize and actually expand government into people's lives in ways that they uh, needed and could trust. And it, it seems like we've gone right over the edge to the opposite side of like being, you know, being anti-government and sort of how, how popular that of a theme it is to vilify the government and think of it as, uh, you know, very suspicious at all levels all the time. When in fact, during the Great Depression, it was really what kept people alive in a lot of ways. And so a lot of these programs that we depend on now and the infrastructure of our country came out of those government expansion projects. Um, and I'm not even making a political statement. I think if we make people's lives better, that's that. Hopefully, that's what we should all be looking at. Um, what are some of the projects you're working on now as a writer? Yeah, um, I am still following the pandemic and how it's going to uh, reshape our lives, um, reshape our world. How um, y- you know, the more we learn about this virus, I feel like the more it kind of cries out for journalists to um, interpret what's going on, and um, hopefully help people understand this historic moment and, um, you know, hopefully make the right decisions electorally, uh, safety wise for their family, uh, educationally, um, so that they can weather this time the best they can. Um, so that's really what I'm 
kind of focused on primarily. Great. Thinking about any, any next books? Um, yeah, I have a few thoughts, but none that I'm ready to share yet. <laughs> Stay tuned. <laughs> Stay tuned. Well, I'm sure you have fans out there. I'm a fan. And, you you know, for people who haven't read Olga Kazan, Hazan, um, need to need to pick up this book. It's called Weird. Tell people where they can find you. Yeah, I'm, uh, I'm at The Atlantic. Theatlantic.com is our website. Um, I'm at Olga Hazan on Twitter. Um, that's pretty much it. You can also just email me if you just want to chat. <laughs> great, great. Well, I appreciate you chatting with us and, and with me and look forward to reading more uh, at The Atlantic and, and beyond. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. This was super fun. Thanks, Olga. Thanks for listening to The Soul of Life. This is Keith Miller. Oh, and don't forget, please leave a thumbs up or a like for this episode wherever you're listening so that others like you may find the soul of life. I mean, really, it's not every day you get to share the soul of life with someone. Okay, so you can post a comment or question on souloflifeshow.com. I'd love to hear from you. And please subscribe now to get the next episode. I look forward to sharing more of my soul of life with you. I like it and it's not harsh to my eardrum. All right, I will go.